Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Underbelly is looking for a product design director in Salt Lake City, Utah. Ithaca Harbors is looking for a user researcher for their search and discovery team in New York City or Ann Arbor, Michigan. If you're looking for remote work, 36 Creative out of the greater Boston area is looking for a senior designer. Brave Achievers is looking for design students for Go Create USA, a no-fee design training program for Black American youth. And Bandcamp is looking for a mobile applications developer. Companies, stop making excuses on your D&I efforts and post your job listing with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry, and this week I'm talking with Vernon Lockhart, creative therapist, artist, and executive director of Project Osmosis out of Chicago, Illinois. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Vernon Lockhart. I am a designer. I call myself a creative therapist. I am a exhibit designer, a brand developer, interactive designer. I am also an artist, and I am the executive director of a program and project called Project Osmosis out of Chicago. Now, one thing that I've been doing for everyone kind of at just the start of these interviews during this pandemic is kind of just doing a check-in to see how folks are doing. So how are you holding up? You know, we're given the space and times that we're in, we're, I'm holding up pretty well. I think one of the saving graces for me in a lot of this is, you know, when you grow up, I'm from the low end of St. Louis. I grew up in a very rough area in St. Louis and, you know, we faced adversity every day. So, you know, you have the coronavirus and things like that now. But for me, growing up, you had to face all kinds of threats and potential adversaries. So I'm holding up well, given the circumstances. I, I commute back and forth, caring for my mother, who I affectionately call a, a baby girl, just caring for her needs. So that's probably one of the few challenges. But as far as business and things go, we still have a lot of clients that we work with online. And for our Project Osmosis, we do a lot of things virtually with the students. Given the circumstances, I'm, I'm very grateful and feel very blessed to, to really be functioning at full capacity. What does a regular day look like for you now? So for me, a regular day would be getting up, one thing that I don't have to do as much, and, and I'm okay with this, is not commuting back and forth so much, but getting up, saying my prayers, getting some breakfast, getting on my laptop, looking at emails, checking the circumference of the day, clients and immediate needs, doing those. Usually that takes me up till about midday. I usually try to schedule any meetings I have around 1030 to noon, roughly, and then any errands I have to run, I usually do early evening. I'm a Southern boy living in the city of Chicago, so I still have a yard and, and a house and things like that. So, you know, I'm out cutting my grass and things like that towards the evening. So I would call it a pretty normal Southern boy day, usually my average day. But I'm a businessman at the same time. So, you know, it's a balance between the two. But that's an average day for me. Okay. 
And so speaking of, about business, you have uh, a design firm called Art on the Loose. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That's correct. Yes. Tell me about it. When did you first start that? So Art on the Loose is, is uh, very interesting. We've been in operation now for about 23 years. I started it in the late 19, I'd say about 96, 1996, roughly. And we, I was actually working at Northwestern University in their, at their Center for Public Safety Division. And we were working on a lot of, you know, cop brochures and things like that. And so it was kind of mundane, just no adventure in it at all. And myself and one of the colleagues that I work with, uh, Dick Detzner, we had a conversation and I said, you know, I, I want to do more. I want to be free. I want to <laughs> I want to have some creative freedom here. And we started talking about doing our own design work. And in our conversation, we start playing with name ideas. And, and I mentioned, you know, I want to be free. I want to be loose in a good way. Right. That's it. Uh, art on the loose. Let's listen. So we kind of because we were both artists and we said, so let's just call it art on the loose. And and that's how the name was born. And then the color palette kind of came from this whole superhero Ultraman thing that I was called as a kid growing up. I'm still called that to this day. And so we use kind of empowering the word art on the loose, but also with the whole color palettes. We, we used our background is, is how we grew up uh, to create the, the business name. And I have to just interject this quick story about Ultraman. When I was a kid, kids were, were calling me Ultraman because my head was pointed. They called me the football head of Ultraman. And, was, and so I was like, you know, and I came home from school. I'm, I'm one of 10 kids, right? So I came home from school and I was upset and I started crying to my mother, baby girl. And I told her what the kids were calling me. And then she said, wait a minute, isn't Ultraman a superhero? It, so I would come home from school and watch Ultraman every day. And she said, I thought he was a superhero. I said, yeah. She says, well, take that negative and make it a positive. And so I literally went up to my room and started designing gear with Ultraman on it. And I went back to school the next day and popped my collar and was like, they were like, Ultraman. I said, yeah, that's right. I'm Ultraman. And so at, at, at 360 that. And so kids started going Ultraman. Oh, and, and, and I took that negative and made it a positive. But it also was one of my first experiences in branding and the power of branding. And so I took that icon and symbol. And even if you look on our business site, you'll see that icon and symbol for, for Ultraman. So I use that to this day. And, uh, and I got my design in artistry from my mother. My mother wanted to be a designer and artist. So, so that's how Art on the Loose in the name came in existence. But that's the story behind it, too. Wow, Ultraman, that's a that's a deep cut. I don't know if many folks listening might remember Ultraman. For those that might not remember, can you tell just a little bit about what Ultraman is? Yeah, so Ultraman was this superhero. He's, he's kind of, I guess, people, you know, from Voltron and things like that. He was an Asian uh, uh, superhero. And he was this normal, his, out of, in his normal self, his name was Hayata. And he had a thing called a beta capsule. So whenever he took that beta capsule and held it up to the sun, he would be transformed into this gigantic superhero called Ultraman. And Ultraman got his energy from the sun. And so he had this pulsating thing on his chest that represented his heart. And so he needed to, so he would fight off these monsters and, you know, these Godzilla type creatures. Every episode was another monster that he had to rescue and save the city. And so I was just so inspired by his ability to go in and protect and rescue. You know, I view myself as a protector. And so he would go in and, and rescue and protect. And so I was, it was just something that just inspired me as a, as a superhero character. So I would come home and watch him every day. They had episodes, you know, every day. They had all these Astro Boy, Ultraman, all these like great superheroes from the 70s, right? And so I literally... Uh, was inspired by these superheroes and literally kept, like I said, these the, the icon and uh, title to this to this day. Yeah, I'm looking at the Art on the Loose website. Like your Ultraman, someone is Mulan, someone is C3PO, someone's Black Widow. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 exactly. And so you see, we have our 
matrix selves, right? We, we, one of the things we do with Art on the Loose and with our brand is in calling ourselves creative therapists, we view branding as a, and design as a problem solving tool. So many of our clients, when they come to us, they may think that they need one thing, but when we do our interview, we'll have them sit on our couch. We have superheroes all over in our office. We have them everywhere. And, and, and we try to get them to tap into their sort of inner self and we'll ask them, okay, what seems to be your creative problem? And then when they start to talk to us about, you know, well, my brand is this, or, or my website is this, they may think they're coming in for us to work on the logo, but we, they may find out that they need a brand audit, or they may need all these other things. And so we come in with this kind of superhero mindset that we're coming in to save the day and to make sure that we rescue our clients from whatever uh, creative challenges that they may face. And... That concept brand has been very effective for us, uh, especially when it comes to doing work in our communities. We do a lot of design work for our for our communities, for African Americans uh, and for Native. My background is also Native, so we do a lot of work in those areas. So you were kind of ahead of the curve with all of this superhero idolatry via movies and everything. You kind of <laughs> you caught on quick. That's good. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah that's awesome. I said to myself, there's something to this, you know, so, uh-huh. so Marvel and, I, and to this day, I'm a fan of all that stuff. So. Yeah. And from what I remember, Ultraman was live action, too, right? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, it yeah. Was sort of like a like a precursor to, say, Power Rangers or or something similar. Where it was like a Japanese show that was sort of dubbed into English. Correct. That's yeah. exactly it. Mm-hmm. What are the best types of, of clients for you to work with? As you sort of started describing it, when you told me earlier, when I asked you kind of what your title was, you said, I'm a creative therapist. And even just now when you're talking about, we have them come in and sit on the couch, like it sounds, it sounds like that's where all that sort of comes from. But when you're analyzing the clients, I guess that's kind of a good way to put it. Like what are the best types for you to work with? So for us, I think, we like to work with people that are passionate about what they're doing. And we love working on projects that deal with education, that deal with young people. But we also work in the corporate environment. We work for, for example, Exxon is one of our clients. We work on their designing their annual report on diversity, right? And we work on a lot of museum projects. One of our clients is actually the Marcus Garvey Museum in Jamaica. So we designed the Marcus Garvey Museum there. We designed the Peter Tosh Museum in Kingston, Jamaica. And so uh, a lot of clients that, you know, that deal with music, deal with community, deal with problem solving, but mainly things about self-identity, things that are similar to Project Osmosis. And we, the energy that we create attracts those kind of clients because they know that we're concerned about our young people and that we do work in the community looking at creating opportunities in the creative realm for, for young people. So it's amazing we wind up attracting that kind of work. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you sort of had this affinity for superheroes. You've put it into the business. Like, I'm curious, when were you sort of exposed to design? It sounds like this is something that really you kind of had a grasp on since you were a kid. Yeah, yeah, I was very fortunate. So my mother, who I, again, baby girl, her name's Elnora Lockhart, I affectionately call her baby girl. She wanted to be a designer. My family's from the deep south, from Starksville, Mississippi. And my father's from Jackson, but my mother, my grandfather had over 100 acres of land down in the deep south. And the Negro Leagues and stuff played baseball on his land. He had a baseball field and all these creative things around. So my mother grew up drawing horses and baseball players and and things of this nature. And my her sisters, when they got of age, they wanted to become teachers and nurses and things like that. And so they became a part of the great migration going north. Well, my mother wanted to be a designer. She entered a, one of these art contest books from like the famous art courses back in the 60s, you know, 50s and 60s. And she entered a contest and won. And so from that, you know, she wanted to become a designer, but her parents didn't know what that was. And so they were like, well, what is this? And, and so 
instead they said, well, we'll you can work at, you know, at one of the restaurants. And, and, and so she worked at one of the restaurants to build money to buy her own books. So she brought these famous art course books, a series of them, and, and was self-taught. She started studying art and doing the exercises and sending them back and, and, and worked at a, you know, a few things, doing some things on the fashion end, but mostly making clothes and things for her sisters and, and people locally in the area. So when I started drawing and doodling as a child, we moved to St. Louis and I saw I was, she moved to St. Louis. I was born in St. Louis and I started when I was like four and five, I started doodling and sketching. And she noticed that right away. And she took my drawings and put them on the refrigerator and said, baby, you can be anything you want when you get grow up and you can be an artist. You can be a. So I got that put on that path super early. I was like five. And she gave me those books. So at eight, nine years old, I have these Norman Rockwell. I'm learning about these artists of old and, and, and these sketches. And all. so I studied those books as a kid. So by the time I was 10 and 11, I knew what I was going to be and knew that I wanted to make an impact in it. And so went to a high school, started studying design in St. Louis. That was really hard to find a school. For that. So I wound up going to a, a technical high school, O'Fallon Tech Design. And from there, you know, start taking business things, the Dale Carnegie courses. And, and then I got a full scholarship to the Art Institute in Chicago. So I owe my mother and, and my father for putting me on that path and kind of endorsing it. My father didn't know what it was. You know, my mother knew, but my, my dad was like more, you're going to work, <laughs> use your hands. And so learning both has helped me now because I do a lot of exhibit design where you have to know how to build things too. So yeah, that's how I got here. I'm curious. Do you still have those books? I do. I have four of them now. One of them I gave to my niece, Jaira, who's an artist, an up and coming artist, too. So I passed it on as kind of a family heirloom to her and told her the story behind it. She's an up and coming artist herself. And that's one of the things that I do with Project Osmosis, of course, is is making sure that the next generation has access to these kinds of creative tools. When I became a designer and started working out, I used to always tell my mother when she sent me to college, I said, I'm going to bring a degree home for, for you, you know, because of the love that you've shown me. But I, I start telling my mother, what I'm going to do is when I become a famous designer, I'm going to buy you this big old house. I'm going to buy you these dogs. I'm going to buy you all these things you want. And she would always say, baby, I don't need all that. I'm good. When you see a youngster with that same gleam in their eyes that you have, you pay it forward. And so that has a lot to do with, you know, not only osmosis, but the way I go about doing my creative career. Now, before we, you know, get to talking more about Project Osmosis, what was it like going to art school back then? You were at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Like, what was that time Mm -hmm. like? So it was very interesting because so the Art Institute is, is rare in the sense that it was an inclusive school, you know, a lot of the first designers of color who could attend, you know, Chuck Harrison, there's just all these artists that could go to that school where many other places they couldn't go. So the Art Institute in Chicago was ahead of the curve in that sense. And it was also connected to the artists, the, the museum, you know, so you had a lot of influence when it comes to up and inspiring creatives and starting very early. So For me, it was interesting, though, going there because from a design perspective, there were a lot of artists of color there, but not many uh, designers of color. So when I got there and I would get sit in the classrooms, that was one of the first things I noticed that there weren't many people that looked like me at the school as far as in design. And that was that had its challenges. You know, and I've dealt with that for years in my my career as a designer. When I joined certain organizations like AIGA and other organizations, you know, I noticed quickly that you get in a room and you'd be like the only person of color there. And then growing up, even in grade school and when I was saying that I was going to be a designer, I literally had teachers tell me, well, you know, black people don't do that. And, And which was very. But. And it would have stopped me if I hadn't had my mother tell me that 
you know, and put my art on the refrigerator and, and, and empower me. You know, when they would tell me that, I'll go, I can be whatever I want. My mama told me I can be a designer. So you can't tell me that. Right. So throughout going high grade school, high school, college, you know, I would run into those situations where, you know, a person would say there aren't, you know, people of color. That's this isn't what they <laughs> do as a career. And I would buck that. I would say, no, you can't tell me what we can and can't do. And that has helped me so much. And it's that's also I know this segues into osmosis, but that also has a lot to do with osmosis and OBD and becoming a part of that, those kinds of organizations. And you start to realize that you were part of a movement that that you had these designers, you know, Leroy Wimbush. You had, like I said, Chuck, you had Margaret Burroughs. You had all these individuals of color who had made these huge impacts, but weren't recognized at all. So one of the things I do now is I also lecture at UIC, the Center for Design, and I lecture on design inclusion. And I, I talk about all these designers of color that have either not been put on record or, or people don't know the contributions that they've made. Wow. It's a, <laughs> I was going to say tale as old as time, <laughs> having people that are trying to discourage mm-hmm. you looking around and not seeing you being reflected in the work or even the, like, the design that you're studying, it sucks that even now in 2020, like in many ways, that's still the case, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. It's such a tough thing to realize that the percentages, you know, what, 3% African-American in the design industry today, you know, after all these years. So for me, it is fuel to my fire, you know, incentive to make sure that that, that 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 won't be permanent, that that's not the case. And, of course, that, again, has a lot to do with uh, Project Osmosis and basically dedicating design career to that. So, yeah. Do you feel like your time being at the Art Institute, do you feel like it really kind of prepared you for being a working designer when you graduated? It did and it didn't. It did in the sense that it let me know by not having so many people that look like you and that, you know, it let me know a little bit of the real world out here when it came to what I was going to face as a designer. Uh, but also they had programs that they had intern programs. And, and so I actually worked at a few companies. I worked at Outside Magazine, this sports magazine. I worked I did some side work with a BSA partners at the time. They were called, I think, Vogel Communication. And so one thing that the Art Institute has as a school and it does to this day is very strong in this is the ability to explore different things. So I was going to school for design, but I also was an art history major for a couple of years and I also took animation. I said so. But all those credits and they didn't do like the grade system, A, B, C, D, you either passed or you failed. You either were doing really good or you weren't doing it at that school. And so that prepared me for the real world in the sense that you either were in it to win it or you weren't. And so in that sense, it prepared me quite well. But in the sense of of being inclusive and being I don't think any school, I think any designer of color going in, you know, would have that experience of being isolated in some and kind of really trying to figure out, you know, their, their road in it and, and what they could do to, to contribute, because it was hard to find others that looked like you in that that you could identify with. So I faced some of those challenges, but I had a lot of angels along the way. Uh, Dr. Margaret Burroughs was one of them. She created the DeSalvo Museum in Chicago at the time. When I met her, I was a I was a guard paying my way through school because by the time I got to my junior year, my scholarship, the tuition was going up every year. My scholarship didn't go up to match it. So I had to get a job, you know, to work and became a security guard at the museum. Like it was kind of like night at the museum. I was a nighttime guard at the art to, to basically because you would you would get one free class tuition as being a, a full time employee for the museum. When I found that out, I said, well, that'll cover the balance of my tuition. And I literally wound up working. And as a guard, I would start my shift in the early evening. I would 
you know, have to lock up the doors at the school. And I met this woman. She was in the printmaking and taglio class doing all these prints. And it was Dr. Burroughs. And I didn't know who Dr. Burroughs was. You know, she was just this lady in the corner working on her screen printing. And I and one day she saw me walk by and she said, well, what's with the long face, young man? And I said, well, I'm down because my tuition, I can't afford to go to this school anymore. And she went to her cabinet and came back to me. And she said, so you down because of currency? I said, yeah. So she said, I'm going to give you some. She gave me a Buffalo Soldier nickel. I mean, she gave me a Buffalo Soldier coin. And she said, so this currency is extremely valuable that I'm giving you. And she said, so I want you to take this and keep it with you. And I don't ever want to hear you talking about that you can't get currency. So you have some currency here. It's not the kind that you think, but this is letting you know your inner worth, not so don't base whether you're going to go to this school or not based on thinking you're not going to have the money. Get Go and figure out a way to get this money and go to. And so I went to the next day to the tuition department and told them my situation and told them that I wound up getting an additional scholarship just because of that advice. And that that helped me get through the, you know, finishing school. And and so you had these people like Dr. Burroughs and these angels that were there all the time that were kind of helping you when you got to those sort of areas that you just don't think you're going to go any further or, or make it. And I know as designers of color, all of us, we've experienced those kinds of things. Wow. That's quite a story. I mean, Margaret Burroughs, I mean, for, for folks that probably don't know, I mean, look her up on Wikipedia. She's very well known. Yes. Wow. Yes. So how did you first get involved with OBD? I, I'm curious about it because the Organization of Black Designers and Revision Path, we kind of have this... I don't want to say it's a shared history because clearly they came well before the show did, but I've certainly had the opportunity to talk with David Rice, to talk with Shauna Stallworth and other folks that were kind of involved with OBD at different parts during its tenure. We even did a couple of years ago, we did this long oral history piece on OBD talking to like past members and kind of trying to get a sense of what the organization was like and where it's going now. But how did you first get started with them? I got started with OBD. It was probably in almost 20 years ago. Uh, no, actually it was longer than that. It was around the same time I was starting my business. And what happened was there was a conference or a friend of mine sent me an email. There's a gentleman, his name's Richard Nelson. I grew up with him in St. Louis. He's a designer as well, a designer of color. He works, uh, he's worked for this firm, Kiko Bodden, done all these amazing pieces, right? But he and him grew up together. And he sent me this a message over the phone saying, there's this organization called Organization Black Designers. You should, we should learn more about it. And when I got that, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I looked up some things about them and about the organization, about David Rice and Shauna, as you mentioned. And they were having a conference coming up. And I don't remember. It was I think it might have been in Atlanta, but they were having a conference. And I basically said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go to this. And I went to the conference and I sat and I was, you know, at some of the sessions and I went to one presentation and they were talking about the different cities and, and starting these chapters. And somebody said, well, what's happening in Chicago? And then David says, well, I don't hear anything but complaints coming out of Chicago. I don't see any work that I took that personal because I was representing Chicago at the at that conference. And I was like, wait, what? You uh -huh. know? So, <laughs> so I said, well, what do you mean? I went up to him and I was like, uh, so what's and he says, well, there, there's no we had a student thing in Chicago. But then it was and I was like, hmm. So I was inspired. It was a great conference. I met all these designers of color, and that really changed my perspective and my, my trajectory in this business. And I was going, wow, look at all of us. And I've been starving for that, just seeing other designers of color and having conversing, talking about their paths. So I quickly went back to Chicago. I was so inspired. I called David. And I was like, you know what? We, we want to do something in Chicago. We want to, and a, a group of us, you know, a consortium of us in Chicago got together and had a little round table and said, we're going to start it. We want to do a chapter here. And that's what we did. And actually it was the uh, uh, co-chaired co uh, OBD Chicago for five years. And then I was the chair for another four. So for nine years, I was, you know, doing OBD and loving it and learning about 
careers in the culture. So similar to you, they were before us, but, you know, they inspired and kind of, you know, our paths kind of intersected. There was an intersection there with what we do. And then with OBD, what happened is osmosis grew out of that. We started as a group. We wanted to do more. We noticed that in Chicago, there was, you know, in the public school system and everything, if, if art isn't in the school systems, design is nowhere to be found. So we recognized that there was no programs or anything. And we wanted to do something. We didn't just want to be this organization of designers of color that weren't doing anything for the next generation. And and so we had these design pioneers like Chuck and Winbush, like I mentioned earlier, that were, you know, was telling us, look, you know, you all, number one, as business people, one of the biggest problems we have as people of color when we're doing business is we don't know how to park that brother, sister, girl attitude mess at the door when we're doing business. And she, he was thinking, uh, okay. No, that, that, you spoke to me on that one. I've definitely encountered that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes that's, that was the thing that Chuck told me. I asked him, I said, what's the most, the thing that we're missing as people of color in doing business and how we inter- work with one another? And he said, that was it. He said, we don't know how to park that attitude. He, he, was, he used this you know, colorful words there. You don't know how to park that essay at the door when we're doing business. I, that stuck with me. And I said, hmm, that is so, I see that. And I said, so with this organization, with what well, we're doing with osmosis and, and starting this up, we need to turn this into something that's going to be tangible and a business. So I said, we don't want to just be paying lip service to this stuff. We want to re- really be trying to make an impact. And so there was a group of us and and with all respect with OBD and what we were doing, you know, with OBD, we were like, well, our path and trajectory here in Chicago is in Chicago chapter start really growing. It started really, really getting big. And we started to say, well, we're doing things more on the mentoring front. And but we recognized that there were certain legal things that wasn't in place really for OBD. And so we said we have to make sure from a business perspective that we're not just doing this with an attitude that we have this stuff in place. And it's, it's a business where it's going to be sustained and make an impact that goes beyond our lives. You know, for the next generation that they can take osmosis and do whatever they choose with it. Right. So that was our objective. And we came up with the, the term project osmosis. It's a osmosis is a scientific term. It actually means, you know, creative fluids going from one end of the spectrum to the other. So we just added the word creative to that. And we just said this is about creative fluids in our community going from one end of the spectrum to the other. And then we came up with a, and we sat in a it was a. At a company called Giant Step and a, a young man, Eric Bailey, who was a part of uh, our group, uh, Lisa Moran, Afia Adams, there was just Jeffrey Trimingham. There's a bunch of us that just said, let's turn this into something solid. You know, Angela Williams, all these folks of color. And we, you know, kind of went from OBD and re- reformatted ourselves into Project Osmosis. And then the rest just, it just took off from there. So Osmosis isn't a one person thing. It's a, a group of people who believes in dream, self-expression and community. And that was our our tag, you know, and that we also recognize that the world is designed by design. And we're dealing with not being included by design. And we recognize that, that, you know, design inclusion and things like that. And people, we I started noticing that people were giving that a lot of lip service. But actually doing work to make it change, people weren't doing that. And we were like, well, Project Osmosis has to be something that's actually in the trenches, that's actually making these changes and and not asking for permission to, to make the change because that's how things don't change. <laughs> you know, one of the things I learned very early is that even with the civil rights movement, that was a, a movement done by young people. You know, you see them now and you go, oh, you know, and I talk to young people. They go, I said, do you realize they were like 19 and 20 when they were doing those changes? So even with our Moses students, we go, well, creatively, how do you want to what kind of changes do you want to make? We have a program in Chicago on our Design Explorer program. And we one of us called 20 for 20. So it's 20 young men of color rebranding themselves. Right. Because here on the south side of Chicago, you have young men and they're they're pre-branded. You know, it's like, well, 
if they wear their hair this way or if they do this, then that means that they're thugs, that means that they're this, then that. And it's like, no, that's your perception. So, but we talk to men themselves and we say, well, you know, this is what people are saying. Who are you? What do you? So we take that whole concept of the superhero and the iconic thing and we use that and talk to them about their brands. I talk to them about my brand. Right. And then they rebrand themselves. And and a few of those young men have now turned those into successful businesses. So osmosis is in the trenches, actually getting things done. We do all kinds of programs, express yourself portraits. You know, we do things that empower our the next generation of creatives. But it's not just trying to create an army of designers. We're, it's, it's about thinking, like, how do you build a better bridge? How can you look at your community and design it in a better way? How can you use creativity as an impact for change? So that's kind of our philosophy. We have these creative startup kits. We also make sure that we don't, that we're not dictating to them what creativity looks like for them. We will give them the startup kits and talk about the tools, but they go into their thing tanks and create amazing things. And so my blessing out of this is being able to see all that that happen, you know, and then even with the term diversity, I actually don't like the word diversity because a lot of people use it as a placeholder word. And when I was growing up and, and, and even in college and going to schools and looking at projects and even with our firm and company will say, well, we want to be diverse. And so they'll get an Asian person, a Latino person, a white person to buy, put them, they go, boom, you know, do a brochure. Now we're diverse. No, you're not diverse. That's the, your stamp version of diversity. But being inclusive is different. That's communal. That's community. So that means when I'm having my fish fry, you know, you can come over. <laughs> and when you have your, your food or from your culture, whatever it is, you're inviting me. Or when your kid or my child's getting on the bus or your child's getting on a bus going to school, I'm checking to make sure that they're safe. That's community and being inclusive. It's, it's getting an invitation to be able to be a part of something. And so what's happened in the black community when it comes to being treated in, in design, design is in the U.S. is a European approach. And it's even taught in schools. You know, you have Bauhaus, you have all these different movements, you know, Scandinavian, and that's viewed as good design. So but then when you talk about other cultures and things like that and other palettes and other fonts and things, they go, well, that's not good. That's not considered good design. Well, design is not always a Europe perspective. And so that's one of the main things that we share with our young people at Osmosis. We're not taking anything away from that because that's beautiful design too. But the design from the culture and the communities that you're from is just as powerful and beautiful. So learn both. You know, if you really want to be a powerful designer, learn and understand cultures and why people do what they do. You know, learn that it's a problem solving tool. And then you can be, you can not only design for other cultures and communities, but you understand the impact that design can make in not only solving a problem, but also addressing how people think. I definitely agree with what you said there regarding kind of how design is sort of taught in this European approach. Uh, I actually did this like town hall thing. I think it was maybe about a couple of months ago or something. And a question was asked about like, how do we use alternative approaches to design that's like not Swiss based or German based? Because that's all that I've known. And I think I just said, like, you have to research. Like, there's so many countries in the world that are not Switzerland or Germany or, you know what I'm saying? Or the Netherlands, where you might have learned a particular European style of design. Like, there's 54 countries in Africa. That means there's probably at least 54 different design types or cultures that you can pull from. You know, not to mention yeah. countries in Asia and the Middle East and South America and Central America. Like, exactly. expand your expand your mind. Like, it's not that hard, especially now with the Internet. Like, come on. That's, ex- that's exactly it. That's exactly it, Maurice. And, and, and that's really what we're, you know, trying to get our young people to engage in. and to know, again, that there were designers and pioneers that walked before you. Like, for example, Charles Dawson, but also what they faced, like Charles Dawson, for example, Designing like for Valmoral and these hair product places where skin bleaching or, you know, coloring was involved. So they're trying to design and, and do things from a black perspective, but they're facing the pressures of people wanting them to design things and papers and things like that to look white. 
And so they're being forced into this Euro design approach. And they resented that. They wrote about it. They talked about it. So actually showing our young people their writings and their information and what they've experienced, that empowers them, right? So osmosis is about not only just teaching design and as a craft, but understanding your culture, where it came from and how it influences you and what you can do and what you have to share. Not only understanding the Euro culture, the Swiss, the Bauhaus, the German, but also understanding, like you said, Africa, understanding East Asia, understanding, you know, Bahamas and and all these Brazil and all these other areas where designers of color have made a huge impact. And it's not just African-American, it's Latin. Really, when you look at it in perspective, you know, from from a number standpoint, those numbers far outweigh the minorities, far outweigh those who are considered practitioners today in design. I don't prescribe to the when I grew up, I recognized that design, you know, in many areas and in many communities was a good old boys network. And so my mindset was, okay, I'm here to infiltrate this process. And, you know, you may not like me for it, but, you know, and I've used diplomacy to go in and to to get connected. But the whole idea is, is that these numbers and these opportunities have to change. I'll tell you a story. This one's very dear to me. I was going to UIC to meet with Chuck Harrison one day and I was walking uh, up to the school and there was these young people that were standing outside looking at these young men. And I walked up to them and I and I was looking, trying to look and see what they were looking at. And I startled them. They kind of looked at me like, whoa. And I said, uh, what are you all doing? And they were looking. They were looking into one of the design classrooms. They were peering in from the. And I said, do you all know what this is? And they were like, no. And I said, this is a design school. This is UIC. This is a campus. This school, this university is in, the, in their community. And they didn't know what, 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 what these rooms. So I literally went and went to the dean. You know, I had my meeting with Chuck. And I talked to him. That was the one who told me about parking a brother, sister, girl attitude stuff in the door. So this was my mentor. He's always telling me, you know, these kinds of words of wisdom. So I told him what I saw. And he said, well, do something about it. You know, don't don't sit here and talk about it. <laughs> you know, you saw it. Go do something. So I went to the dean and said, look, you know, you have these young men of color, these students out there. They're looking in. They don't know what this is. This place is. And the dean said, you know, Miss Kirshen, she said, uh, yeah, Vern. So what are you going to do about it? So same thing. I was like, oh, <laughs> and so I, I literally went back and talked to a few of uh, Osmosis folks and we decided to create a design UU form. That was uh, about 13 years ago. I think we were on our, no, it was longer than that, about 15 years ago. We've done 15 design U forms. Now we average about 120 students from the Chicago area that will meet with professionals for two days and we get the campus. We actually during spring break, we get the campus and we actually have fashion, graphic, industrial, interior. We have some of the instructors that teach at UIC, do some of the workshops. Uh, my dearest, my dear friend, Marsha Lawson is uh, my par- partner in passion in this and she's at UIC. So she's opened up and allowed. So without their and they put their money where their mouth was with this whole piece, right? They literally said, okay, we hear you. We're going to do something about this. We're going to have, and so those, some of those same young men that were sitting out, standing out watching that, those, uh, at least one of those young men is a professional designer now, right? And that's part of our story, our, our narrative in osmosis, because then they were invited in. And so now uh, with UIC, and even with UIC, they, they still do with those numbers, Right. But that's what I mean by being inclusive. If you don't get an invitation saying that you can you're going to feel out of place. You know, we don't want our young people to be sitting in rooms going, they don't want me here anyway. So what am I doing here? Wasting my time. You know, and so that's one of the things with osmosis. We try to make sure that our students have a place of, of residence, which is why we're doing a big campaign now to build a osmosis design center on the south side of Chicago. I have to ask this, the Chuck Harrison that you're talking about, is this like the Chuck Harrison? Like, 
of Sears yeah. Roebuck Viewmaster. Yes. I like how slyly you glossed over that. Like, oh yeah, me and my friend Chuck, we <laughs> we kind of like you weren't just like walking with like an industrial design master. You know, I know he yeah, passed yeah. away a couple of years ago, yeah. Uh, but yeah. yeah, wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a father figure to to several of us, and he was a big reason. Him and Leroy Wimbush were big reasons why. Osmosis uh, survived. They were advisors. They were they served on our advisor board. They would check our hands. You know, they would give us the real. They didn't sugarcoat it for me, for us as a group. They told us what we were dealing with. And when it came to being inclusive, they talked about their personal experiences. I would literally go with him at least once a week. He had a uh, a boat, and we would, you know, he taught me how to sail too. And we would go out on the lake, in Chicago, and look up and he would he would basically just hand these pearls of wisdom uh, over. And so so I'm going to send you two things, uh, Maurice. I'm going to send you, we wound up doing hit Jeff Trimingham. We wound up doing Chuck's book on his life. It's called The Life's Design. And we did. Yeah, we, we reviewed that actually, that book on Revision Path. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so, so yeah, these were fathers to us. And so I'll send you, it took us 10 years to do it. We, we, we uh, uh, about a year and a half ago, finished Leroy Wimbush's book, and it's on his life and memoirs, and he basically handed those. So they handed us their stories and said, tell our stories. And so we were like, but the pressure was huge, too, because we know how important these men are. So that's something that Osmosis does, too. It not only does deals with the, the future, it's also about making sure that our young people know about the contributions that these designers that have walked before him, that there's a path there, that there's influence that there are books that they can read not beyond euro and german and and no again no offense to those books but they have that's one of the reasons why we're creating these books and one of the we do in our programs we make sure that each of our young people get one of those books so between the design youth form workshops now on average like i said we average over 100 students per year this is the first year and that was a challenge we faced you asked me earlier about challenges we face that was a challenge because we had to turn things into virtual, like overnight. We normally do our youth forum in March during spring break. And then you know, COVID hit and it was like, uh oh, you know, so we had to kind of re parlay everything to do online versions of of everything. But we have, you know, support. We're now put our energy in this center. We're trying to we're doing a campaign to raise twenty five million to build an actual design center, like I said, on the south side of Chicago. We're going to house in that center the books and the archives of Chuck, Cheryl Miller, I mean, Leroy, all these designers of, of color that have made all these amazing, you know, Charles Dawson, just there's the names are endless, you know. And then there are many designers of, of color and industrial designers that are still alive, that are like male, you know, no, and just all these great designers that that we should be really, and we stand on their shoulders, but sometimes we haven't talked with them enough to really recognize what they've done to help put us in a position to succeed. So this is a movement to me. It's not just this kind of, well, how do we be more inclusive? It's like, well, one of the things that I dislike, a lot of companies will come to me, to us or come to me. And say, well, Vern, we're looking for to have somebody, you know, of color here. And it's like, well, if you haven't, you know, invested in any, any of that in the process, what have you done to make sure that there are designers of color, too? But what makes you think they want to work with you if you haven't even noticed them or don't know anything about their culture or community until you need to change your books or look a certain way uh, in front of your board? So that's not that's not what this is for. And so I'm much more animate about that portion. It's like, no, if you want to be inclusive as a company, then you need to be invest in being inclusive and, and you need to look at what you can do as an organization to make sure that, you know, there are designers that are of different cultures and backgrounds that may be different than your own. Uh, and then depending on your own culture, invest in that too to have a better understanding that design is a problem-solving tool. So if this is a big problem you see, 
you know, use it, use design as in a way to actually help solve that. And we have a lot of individuals who who actually do do that and invest in that. So I give credit where credit is due and I don't give credit where it ain't due. So (laughs) sorry. (laughs) How can people listening to this podcast help support Project Osmosis and what you're doing? Well, one really important way, again, is really. So there's several areas. One area is rolling up your sleeves and being active in actually coming out, doing some of our workshops. We have several programs that are listed on the website. It's projectosmosis.org. It's, you know, you can go there and sign up for different programs and projects. The other thing is our big campaign for this design center. Now more than ever, there is this need for a creative outlet on the south side of Chicago. One of the reasons why a lot of you know, folks get involved in, in very negative things because they don't have a, a creative outlet. So many kids are growing up, like I was saying, I grew up getting smacked on the hand when they draw or doodle or draw on a desk or draw on a, you know, or do graffiti. People do that in communities because they're looking for creative outlets. And so to create a uh, resource in a design center where not only will you ha- have classes and programs and workshops, done in many cases by people that look like you in your own community, that's empowering in itself. The other thing that it'll do is it'll, one of the things that I always experience when I work with museums and things like that, you know, I'll go to a meeting and they'll say, well, you know, we want to come out and we want to do these things. We want to, but then they don't come, right? It's like, you have to bring your students to our museum. You have to bring your students to, well, what if they can't get there? Or what if they they don't feel like they're really invited there? One is because they never seen you in their community. So they don't know who you are. So this center will also serve as that. It's going to be a place where nobody has an excuse that they can't come out to a nice, beautiful place and support our kids. Right. And vice versa. And then that empowers our young people to go down and tour the museums. So that's why we do our design explorers programs for those reasons, because it empowers kids to be. To, to what we call cross-pollinate. So we use that term in osmosis too. Cross-pollinate creatively, where you can see their community, but then they can see yours. That empowers them to learn about what you do. You know, and so get involved in that. So that's the financial part, right? So these organizations and companies I hear all the time, corporate places, well, we want to put our money somewhere that's going to make a change and make a difference. It's like, yeah, this would be it. <laughs> and you talk about empowering our young people creatively when it's not in the public school systems right now. It would be a, a, a safe, a creative safe haven for many of our young people. The third way that individuals can participate is learning and investing at an early age when they're when they're young, as far as introducing, bringing them into your companies, letting them. One of the things we do is we. Like with VSA partners, we have a partnership with them where we'll have some of our young people. And Dana, those guys, they're great over there in the sense that, you know, we can bring our young people in and they do a presentation and talk to them about, well, this is what we do with IBM. And we actually have our young people ask them questions. And it's always amazing because I think when they when these companies do that, they don't expect our young people to ask them the questions they ask. You know, they'll say something like, well, how did you get into this? And how much money do you make? Or how much did it? And they're kind of like, oh, my God. You know, they're asking me. I said, no, we work with them to let them know. Don't be afraid. You know, you have a human right to be creative, too. So ask them about what they do and learn from them. And, and so communities and companies and organizations can be proactive in, in what we do. How have you seen the design world change over the years? I mean, the the one thing that I get definitely from this conversation is that you have had really kind of a front row seat on where black design has come from, from like, I don't know, a very early age. You've really seen how this field has grown to that end. Like, how have you really seen that change happen? There's been a, a lot of changes. One is I would say the internal empowerment is huge where young people now that I see creative, uh, even in osmosis, and and there are so many of them, and we're interviewing a lot of them right now, by the way, too. We're going to be posting 
them on our website, like Tahiti Spears, who, you know, she's a young designer and she's like, done, you know, designed some work for BET and she works for the uh, um, Bar Association. I mean, she just does all this amazing work, right? So her confidence level, just coming out the gate, that's just, I go, wow, <laughs> you know, and she talks about it. She says, you know, Osmosis empowered me early. You know, we hired her as an intern uh, for Osmosis. And then, and then Art on the Loose, she worked with Art on the Loose. She still does. You, 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 you probably saw her on our website, right? So just seeing people from an empowerment standpoint, it's, it's, that's changed over the years where, like with Leroy, uh, Cheryl Miller, Chuck, you know, these icons, what they faced in the adversity they, they faced, they've carved inroads for us to, to move faster and to be able to, you know, take advantage of the, the racial discrimination and things that they went through. So we have a, a bit of a, a bigger platform than they did to, to work from. So that's a big change. The other is, is we have modern technology now where you can record everything, right? <laughs> so people can't, how should I say, they can't get away with stuff as easily as they used to be able to. So that's huge. And using technology and advertisements and things like that, where we're not forced as much into a box, it still happens, even in corporate America. It still happens where companies want you to, you know, but now companies will come back to you and say, you know what? We've had companies approach us and say, we want to be more inclusive and help us with our brand and to look at, you know, where you wouldn't have been called and asked to do anything like that, you know, years ago. Where so people know that it's a subject that needs to be addressed. So that's changed over the years where people don't get to sweep it under the rug as quickly. Another thing that I think has changed is the education of now we have these narratives that we can share with our young people. So that that empowers them much quicker. They go they can read about a book about Leroy Wimbush or about Dr. Burroughs or about and go, you know what? I can do this. They did it. I can. So we're maybe four generations in now of creatives and, and it goes as far back to, you know, empowering us in, from the migration as coming here from the motherland and, and being able to really now have a sense of identity. It's amazing. We talk about brands and brand identity and that's literally, you know, you have to do a brand audit a lot of times for companies just to understand and research who you are. So I think now that's something that we're able to do and have a much more of an internal empowerment. And then, of course, people like myself and you, that's very in the industry, you know, where we now get to meet each other and talk and do podcasts and get, do things like this. where We get to tell our narratives and share and encourage one another. So we much more have a consortium. Chicago is very strong as far as an art community goes and a design community. That's something that, that osmosis that I'm probably most proud of. You know, we have our osmosis board and staff meetings. You know, you got 20, 30 people, you know, a design club and they all talking with one another and let's see how we can work together and help. So we we formed our own business consortium, too, where we get business and we work with one another and create opportunities uh, because of that. So I believe you change the numbers one on one. You know, if you want to change the numbers and you see a young person like my mother said with that gleam in their eye, then you pay it forward and help them. And, and our only rule with osmosis is, is that same rule. When you get to your area, when you get in a position that you can help another young person that, you know, is coming from an area that they don't have those kinds of resources and things, you you help that person. If you do that, you not only do right by our organization and value but you do right by your own culture and your own community. So one thing that I'm asking everyone that's been on the show this year is sort of around this theme of like black futures, black futurism, et cetera, like black folks basically seeing themselves in the future. And so the question that I've been asking is how are you using your talents to help create a more equitable future? One is using our creativity. Like I said, we, we coined those phrases uh, we all have the human right to be creative and the world is designed by design. So what we do is we push those kinds of uh, that ideology and getting young people to sit down and, and, you know, do their own ideation, come up with their own concepts, come up with their own visuals and having a place 
to store it. We talk with them about patents and copyrights and things, how to legally protect what you create and what you do. But we also talk with them about the power of design. And again, how Afro, we have a program called Afrofuturism is now. And to get them to see not only the future, but see themselves now applying creativity to the next step. Because it literally it's every moment is the future that you're in. And we try to get them to to really look at where things are going. Our programs and titles can be hardcore, you know, where a lot of organizations won't go in that hard. We will work on a public service announcement dealing with violence in Chicago uh, because that's what the young people are concerned about. Or we may do a We did a project called Missy Elliott Goes to Mars. Right. Because the young love Missy Elliott. Right. And they were like, we're going to design our lunar boots. So the industrial design class did that. And then, you know, another class may have worked on our album cover another to the point where she saw some of that stuff and, you know, literally said, this is wonderful what these students are doing. So we look at the future. Futurism is now. But we don't get in their way. We basically just kind of create launching pads uh, for them. So that's what my contribution and what osmosis and our colleagues contribution is is just to make sure that they have a runway to take off from. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What kind of work do you want to be doing? I'd imagine, of course, with Project Osmosis, but just kind of tell me in five years, it's 2025. Hopefully we are well past COVID. Where do you Mm -hmm. see yourself? What kind of work do you want to be doing? I see myself doing a lot. I mean, I'm I'm serving right now as an ambassador for the center to really build momentum to get it built. I see myself serving in some of those areas and going out and lecturing and talking about design inclusion, uh, about these narratives that I've been entrusted with to make sure they're passed and paid forward uh, to the next generation, especially of young people of color. But also see myself as still as a designer. I, I don't think if you're passionate, I'm very passionate about design. We're you know, bidding on some projects now, you know, we're in Jamaica, designing museums over there, doing some things internationally. We did schematics for Chicago Women in the Boat project with the Chicago History Museum. So I see myself doing more of the same, you know, maybe at a higher level, maybe also doing more books on designers of color. Uh, like I said, we've done a few, but, you know, we're talking with a few other folks like Cheryl Miller and others to work with them on designing their books in their history. So more of that and then just helping along the next generation. Uh, I see myself, but also I see myself having more relaxation time. I feel I've earned it, you know, <laughs> and, and being able to go and, and, and take a little longer extended vacation here and there, but I'll still be in the trenches. All right. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, Vernon, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and the firm and everything online? Yes, so it's Art on the Loose, Inc. So it's artontheloose.com. And you can also look up Vernon Lockhart on LinkedIn. You can also, we're on Facebook and in all those uh, platforms. Uh, Project Osmosis is projectosmosis.org. And you can, again, go online and and take a look at all of our uh, materials. We're on social media, on all those platforms. I also lecture at UIC, uh, the uh, School for Design, so you can also go on uic.edu's website and and learn and see a little bit more about the lectures that I that I do there. But and if you and if you're in Chicago at any time, you know it's pretty easy to 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 find me. My numbers and things are online, uh, so it's pretty easy to get get to reach me that way too. All right. Sounds good. Well, Vernon Lockhart, I want to thank you so much for coming on Revision Path. I mean, the history lesson that you've given just of your life and of your work, I think is something that hopefully when people listen to this, they realize just how like deep and rich and storied that it is. I just feel privileged to be able to talk to you and to know that you've kind of really also helped out the next generation of designers continually. Like this is not something that, you know, I know a lot of companies this year kind of just jumped on the black lives matter kind of bandwagon and everything, but you've been doing this for 20 plus years now. I mean, 
really like it's an inspiration to me and I've only been doing this now just for like about seven years. So just knowing that you've had this, this skin in the game for this long and that you're still out here teaching the next generation and also preserving our history as black designers. I mean, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Well, it's a, uh, Mr. Chair Maurice, it's, it's an honor and a privilege and thank you for having me in and I'm grateful. And again, for me, the main thing is for us, we're, we're both in this to make an impact for the next generation. And it goes beyond our lives. I want this to affect people that I may not ever get to meet. So uh, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Big, big thanks to Vernon Lockhart. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Vernon and his work through the links in the show notes at RevisionPath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at YepIt'sLunch.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.